Chapter 5 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matt Markgraf. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay, Volume 2, Chapter 5 popular follies of great cities la fête d'andain la fête d'andain vive la fête d'andain belanger the popular humours of a great city are a never-failing source of amusement to the man whose sympathies are hospitable enough to embrace all his kind and who refined though he may be himself will not sneer at the humble wit or grotesque peculiarities of the boozing mechanic the squalid beggar the vicious urchin and all the motley group of the idle the reckless and the imitative that swarm in the alleys and broadways of a metropolis he who walks through a great city to find subjects for weeping may find plenty at every corner to wring his heart but let such a man walk on his own course and enjoy his grief alone we are not of those who would accompany him the miseries of us poor earth dwellers gain no alleviation from the sympathy of those who merely hunt them out to be pathetic over them the weeping philosopher too often impairs his eyesight by his woe and becomes unable from his tears to see the remedies for the evils which he deplores thus it will often be found that the man of no tears is the truest philanthropist as he is the best physician who wears a cheerful face even in the worst of cases so many pens have been employed to point out the miseries and so many to condemn the crimes and vices and more serious follies of the multitude that ours shall not increase the number at least not in this chapter our present task shall be less ungracious and wandering through the busy haunts of great cities we shall seek only for amusement and note as we pass a few of the harmless follies and whimsies of the poor and first of all walk where we will we cannot help hearing from every side a phrase repeated with delight and received with laughter by men with hard hands and dirty faces by saucy butcher lads and errand boys by loose women by hackney coachmen cabriolet drivers and idle fellows who loiter at the corner of streets not one utters this phrase without producing a laugh from all within hearing it seems applicable to every circumstance and is the universal answer to every question in short it is the favorite slang phrase of the day a phrase that while its brief season of popularity lasts throws a dash of fun and frolicsomeness over the existence of squalid poverty and ill-requited labor and gives them reason to laugh as well as their more fortunate fellows in a higher stage of society london is peculiarly fertile in this sort of phrases which spring up suddenly no one knows exactly in what spot and pervade the whole population in a few hours no one knows how many years ago the favorite phrase for though but a monosyllable it was a phrase in itself was quas this odd word took the fancy of the multitude in an extraordinary degree and very soon acquired an almost boundless meaning when vulgar wit wished to mark its incredulity and raise a laugh at the same time there was no resource so sure as this popular piece of slang 
when a man who asked a favor which he did not choose to grant he marked his sense of the suitor's unparalleled presumption by exclaiming quas when a mischievous urchin wished to annoy a passenger and create mirth for his comrades he looked him in the face and cried out quas and the exclamation never failed in its object when a disputant was desirous of throwing a doubt upon the veracity of his opponent and getting summarily rid of an argument which he could not overturn he uttered the word quas with a contemptuous curl of his lip and an impatient shrug of his shoulders the universal monosyllable conveyed all his meaning and not only told his opponent that he lied but that he erred egregiously if he thought that any one was such a nincompoop as to believe him every alehouse resounded with quas every street corner was noisy with it and every wall for miles around was chalked with it but like all other earthly things quas had its season and passed away as suddenly as it arose never again to be the pet and the idol of the populace a new claimant drove it from its place and held undisputed sway till in its turn it was hurled from its preeminence and a successor appointed in its stead what a shocking bad hat was the phrase that was next in vogue no sooner had it become universal than thousands of idle but sharp eyes were on the watch for any passenger whose hat showed any signs however slight of ancient service immediately the cry arose and like the war-whoop of the indians was repeated by a hundred discordant throats he was a wise man who finding himself under these circumstances the observed of all observers bore his honours meekly he who showed symptoms of ill-feeling at the imputations cast upon his hat only brought upon himself redoubled notice the mob soon perceive whether a man is irritable and if of their own class they love to make sport of him when such a man and with such a hat passed in those days through a crowded neighborhood he might think himself fortunate if his annoyances were confined to the shouts and cries of the populace the obnoxious hat was often snatched from his head and thrown into the gutter by some practical joker and then raised covered with mud upon the end of a stick for the admiration of the spectators who held their sides with laughter and exclaimed in the pauses of their mirth oh what a shocking bad hat what a shocking bad hat many a nervous poor man whose purse could but ill spare the outlay doubtless purchased a new hat before the time in order to avoid exposure in this manner the origin of this singular saying which made fun for the metropolis for months is not involved in the same obscurity as that which shrouds the origin of quas and some others there had been a hotly contested election for the borough of southwark and one of the candidates was an eminent hatter this gentleman in canvassing the electors adopted a somewhat professional mode of conciliating their goodwill and of bribing them without letting them perceive that they were bribed whenever he called upon or met a voter whose hat was not of the best material or being so had seen its best days he invariably said what a shocking bad hat you have got call at my warehouse and you shall have a new one upon the day of election this circumstance was remembered and his opponents made the most of it 
by inciting the crowd to keep up an incessant cry of what a shocking bad hat at the time the honorable candidate was addressing them from southwark the phrase spread all over london and reigned for a time in the supreme slang of the season hooky wooka derived from the chorus of a popular ballad was also high in favor at one time and served like its predecessor quas to answer all questions in the course of time the latter word alone became the favorite and was uttered with a peculiar drawl upon the first syllable and a sharp turn upon the last if a lively servant girl was importuned for a kiss by a fellow she did not care about she cocked her little nose and cried walka if a dustman asked his friend for a loan of a shilling and his friend was either unable or unwilling to accommodate him the probable answer he would receive was walka if a drunken man was reeling about the streets and a boy pulled his coat-tails or a man knocked his hat over his eyes to make fun of him the joke was always accompanied by the same exclamation this lasted for two or three months and wooka walked off the stage never more to be revived for the entertainment of that or any future generation the next phrase was a most preposterous one who invented it how it arose or where it was first heard are alike unknown nothing about it is certain but that for months it was the slang par excellence of the londoners and afforded them a vast gratification there he goes with his eye out or there she goes with her eye out as the sex of the party alluded to might be was in the mouth of everybody who knew the town the sober part of the community were as much puzzled by this unaccountable saying as the vulgar were delighted with it the wise thought it very foolish but the many thought it very funny and the idle amused themselves by chalking it upon walls or scribbling it upon monuments but all's that bright must fade even in slang the people grew tired of their hobby and there he goes with his eye out was heard no more in its accustomed haunts another very odd phrase came into repute in a brief space afterwards in the form of the impertinent and not universally apposite query has your mother sold her mangle but its popularity was not of that boisterous and cordial kind which ensures a long continuance of favor what tended to impede its progress was that it could not be well applied to the older portions of society it consequently ran but a brief career and then sank into oblivion its successor enjoyed a more extended fame and laid its foundations so deep that years and changing fashions have not sufficed to eradicate it this phrase was flare up and it is even now a colloquialism in common use it took its rise in the name of the reform riots when bristol was nearly half burned by the infuriated populace the flames were said to have flared up in the devoted city whether there was anything peculiarly captivating in the sound or in the idea of these words is hard to say but whatever was the reason it tickled the mob fancy mightily and drove all other slang out of the field before it nothing was to be heard all over london but flare up it answered all questions settled all disputes and was applied to all persons all things and all circumstances and became suddenly the most comprehensive phrase in the english language the man who had overstepped the bounds of decorum in his speech was said to have flared up 
he who had paid visits too repeated to the gin shop and got damaged in consequence had flared up to put oneself into a passion to stroll out on a nocturnal frolic and alarm a neighborhood or to create a disturbance in any shape was to flare up a lover's quarrel was a flare-up so was a boxing match between two blackguards in the street and the preachers of sedition and revolution recommended the english nation to flare up like the french so great a favorite was the word that the people loved to repeat it for its very sound they delighted apparently in hearing their own organs articulated and laboring men when none who could respond to the call were within hearing would often startle the aristocratic echoes of the west by the well-known slang phrase of the east even in the dead hours of the night the ears of those who watched late or who could not sleep were saluted with the same sound the drunkard reeling home showed that he was still a man and a citizen by calling flare-up in the pauses of his hiccup drink had deprived him of the power of arranging all other ideas his intellect was sunk to the level of the brutes but he clung to humanity by one last link of the popular cry when he could vociferate that sound he had rights as an englishman and would not sleep in a gutter like a dog onwards he went disturbing quiet streets and comfortable people by his whoop till exhausted nature could support him no more and he rolled powerless into the road when in due time afterwards the policeman stumbled upon him as he lay that guardian of the peace turned the full light of his lantern on his face and exclaimed here's a poor devil who has been flaring up then came the stretcher on which the victim of deep potations was carried to the watch-house and pitched into a dirty cell among a score of wretches about as far gone as himself who saluted their new comrade by a loud long shout of flare up so universal was this phrase and so enduring seemed its popularity that a speculator who knew not of the evanescence of slang established a weekly newspaper under its name but he was like the man who built his house upon the sand his foundation gave way under him and the phrase and the newspaper were washed into the mighty sea of the things that were the people grew at last weary of the monotony and flare up became vulgar even among them gradually it was left to little boys who did not know the world and in process of time sank altogether into neglect it is now heard no more as a piece of popular slang but the words are still used to signify any sudden outburst either of fire disturbance or ill-nature the next phrase that enjoyed the favor of the million was less concise and seemed to have been originally aimed against precocious youths who gave themselves the airs of manhood before their time does your mother know you're out was the provoking query addressed to young men of more than reasonable swagger who smoked cigars in the streets and wore false whiskers to look irresistible we have seen many a conceited fellow who could not suffer a woman to pass him without staring her out of countenance reduced at once to his natural insignificance by the mere utterance of this phrase apprentice lads and shopmen in their sunday clothes held the words in abhorrence and looked fierce when they were applied to them altogether the phrase had a very salutary effect and in a thousand instances showed young vanity that it was not half so pretty and engaging as it thought itself 
What rendered it so provoking was the doubt it implied as to the capability of self-guidance possessed by the individual to whom it was addressed. Does your mother know you're out? Was a query of mock concern and solicitude implying regret and concern that one so young and inexperienced in the ways of a great city should be allowed to wander abroad without the guidance of a parent. Hence the great wrath of those who verged on manhood but had not reached it whenever they were made the subject of it. Even older heads did not like it, and the heir of a ducal house, an inheritor of a warrior's name, to whom they were applied by a cabriolet driver who was ignorant of his rank, was so indignant at the affront that he summoned the offender before the magisterial bench. The fellow had wished to impose upon his lordship by asking double the fare he was entitled to, and when his lordship resisted the demand, he was insultingly asked if his mother knew he was out. All the drivers on the stand joined in the query, and his lordship was fain to escape their laughter by walking away with as much haste as his dignity would allow. The man pleaded ignorance that his customer was a lord, but offended justice fined him for his mistake. When this phrase had numbered its appointed days, it died away like its predecessors, and who are you reigned in its stead. This new favorite, like a mushroom, seems to have sprung up in a night, or like a frog in Cheapside to have come down in a sudden shower. One day it was unheard, unknown, uninvented. The next it pervaded London. Every alley resounded with it, every highway was musical with it, and street to street and lane to lane flung back the one unvarying cry. The phrase was uttered quickly, and with a sharp sound upon the first and last words, leaving the middle little one more than an aspiration. Like all its compeers which had been extensively popular, it was applicable to almost every variety of circumstance. The lovers of a plain answer to a plain question did not like it at all. Insolence made use of it to give offense, ignorance to avoid exposing itself, and waggery to create laughter. Every newcomer into an alehouse taproom was asked unceremoniously, Who are you? And if he looked foolish, scratched his head, and did not know what to reply, shouts of boisterous merriment resounded on every side. An authoritative disputant was not unfrequently put down, and presumption of every kind checked by the same query. When its popularity was at its height, a gentleman, feeling the hand of a thief in his pocket, turned suddenly round and caught him in the act, exclaiming, Who are you? The mob which gathered round applauded to the very echo, and thought it the most capital joke they had ever heard, the very acme of wit, the very essence of humor. Another circumstance of a similar kind gave an additional fillip to the phrase, and infused new life and vigor into it just as it was dying away. The scene occurred in the chief criminal court of the kingdom. A prisoner stood at the bar, the offense with which he had been charged was clearly proved against him, his counsel had been heard not in his defense but in extenuation, insisting upon his previous good life and character as reasons for the lenity of the court. "'And where are your witnesses?' inquired the learned judge who presided. "'Please you, my lord. I knows the prisoner at the bar, and a more honester feller never breathed,' said a rough voice in the gallery. The officers of the court looked aghast, and the strangers tittered with ill-suppressed laughter. "'Who are you?' said the judge, looking suddenly up, but with imperturbable gravity. 
the court was convulsed the titter broke out into a laugh and it was several minutes before silence and decorum could be restored when the ushers recovered their self-possession they made a diligent search for the profane transgressor but he was not to be found nobody knew him nobody had seen him after a while business of the court again proceeded the next prisoner brought up for trial augured favorably of his prospects when he learned that the solemn lips of the representative of justice had uttered the popular phrase as if he felt and appreciated it there was no fear that such a judge would use undue severity his heart was with the people he understood their language and their manners and would make allowances for the temptations which drove them into crime so thought many of the prisoners if we may infer it from the fact that the learned judge suddenly acquired an immense increase of popularity the praise of his wit was in every mouth and who are you renewed its lease and remained in possession of public favor for another term in consequence but it must not be supposed that there were no interregna between the domain of the slang phrase and another they did not arise in one long line of unbroken succession but shared with song the possession of popular favor thus when the people were in the mood for music slang advanced its claims to no purpose and when they were inclined for slang the sweet voice of music wooed them in vain about thirty years ago london resounded with one chorus with the love of which everybody seemed to be smitten girls and boys young men and old maidens and wives and widows were all alike musical there was an absolute mania for singing and the worst of it was that like good father philip in the romance of the monastery they seemed utterly unable to change their tune cherry ripe cherry ripe was the universal cry of all the idle in the town every unmelodious voice gave utterance to it every crazy fiddle every cracked flute every wheezy pipe every street organ was heard in the same strain until studious and quiet men stopped their ears in desperation or fled miles away into the fields or woodlands to be at peace this plague lasted for a twelvemonth until the very name of cherries became an abomination in the land at last the excitement wore itself away and the tide of favor set in a new direction whether it was another song or a slang phrase is difficult to determine at this distance of time but certain it is that very shortly afterwards people went mad upon a dramatic subject and nothing was to be heard of but tommy and jerry verbal wit had amused the multitude long enough and they became more practical in their recreation every youth on the town was seized with the fierce desire of distinguishing himself by knocking down the charlies being locked up all night in a watch-house or kicking up a row among loose women and blackguard men in the low dens of st giles's imitative boys vied with their elders in similar exploits until this unworthy passion for such it was had lasted like other follies its appointed time and the town became merry after another fashion it was the next thought the height of vulgar wit to answer all questions by placing the point of the thumb upon the tip of the nose and twirling the fingers in the air if one man had wished to insult or annoy another he had only to make use of this cabalistic sign in his face and his object was accomplished at every street corner where a group was assembled the spectator who was curious enough to observe their movements would be sure to see the fingers of some of them at their noses 
either as a mark of incredulity, surprise, refusal, or mockery, before he had watched two minutes. There is some remnant of this absurd custom to be seen to this day, but it is thought low even among the vulgar. About sixteen years ago, London became again most preposterously musical. The vox populi wore itself hoarse by singing the phrases of the sea, the sea. If a stranger and a philosopher had walked through London and listened to the universal chorus, he might have constructed a very pretty theory upon the love of the English for the sea service, and our acknowledged superiority over all other nations upon that element. No wonder, he might have said, that this people is invincible upon the ocean. The love of it mixes with their daily thoughts. They celebrate it even in the marketplace. Their street minstrels excite charity by it, and high and low, young and old, male and female, chant low paeans in its praise. Love is not honored in the national songs of this warlike race. Bacchus is no god to them. They are men of sterner mold, and think only of the sea, the sea, and the means of conquering upon it. Such would doubtless have been his impression if he had taken the evidence only of his ears. Alas, in those days, for the refined ears that were musical, great was their torture when discord, with its thousand diversities of tone, struck up this appalling anthem. There was no escape from it. The migratory minstrels of Savoy caught the strain and peeled it down the long vistas of quiet streets, till their innermost and snuggest apartments re-echoed with the sound. Men were obliged to endure this crying evil for full six months, wearied to desperation and made seasick on the dry land. Several other songs sprang up in due succession afterwards, but none of them, with the exception of one entitled All Round My Hat, enjoyed any extraordinary share of favor, until an American actor introduced a vile song called Jim Crow. The singer sang his verses in appropriate costume, with grotesque gesticulations, and a sudden whirl of his body at the close of each verse, it took the taste of the town immediately. And for months the ears of orderly people were stunned by the senseless chorus. Turn about and wheel about and do just so. Turn about and wheel about and jump, Jim Crow. Street minstrels blackened their faces in order to give proper effect to the verses, and featherless urchins, who had to choose between thieving and singing for their livelihood, took up the latter course, as likely to be the more profitable, as long as the public taste remained in that direction. The uncouth dance, its accompaniment, might be seen in its full perfection on market nights in any great thoroughfare and the words of the song might be heard piercing above all the din and buzz of the ever-moving multitude. He, the calm observer, who, during the heyday popularity of this doggerel, sate beside the public way, thick-strewn with summer dust, and saw the stream of people there was hurrying to and fro, numerous as gnats upon the evening gleam, might have exclaimed with Shelley that the million with fierce song and maniac dance did rage around. The philosophic theorist we have already supposed soliloquizing upon the English character and forming his opinion of it from their exceeding love for a sea song might, if he had again dropped suddenly into London, have formed another very plausible theory to account for our unremitting efforts for the abolition of the slave trade. Benevolent people, he might have said, how unbounded are your sympathies, your unhappy brethren of Africa! 
differing from you only in the color of their skins are so dear to you and you begrudge so little the twenty million you have paid on their behalf that you love to have a memento of them continually in your sight jim crow is the representative of that injured race and such is the idol of your populace see how they all sing his praises how they imitate his peculiarities how they repeat his name in their moments of leisure and relaxation they even carve images of him to adorn their hearths and his cause and his sufferings may never be forgotten o oh, philanthropic england o oh, vanguard of civilization such are a few of the peculiarities of the london multitude when no riot no execution no murder no balloon disturbs the even current of their thoughts these are the whimsies of the mass the harmless follies by which they unconsciously endeavor to lighten the load of care which presses upon their existence the wise man even though he smile at them will not altogether withhold his sympathy and will say let them enjoy their slang phrases and their choruses if they will and if they cannot be happy at least let them be merry to the englishman as well as to the frenchman of whom beranger sings there may be some comfort in so small a thing as a song and we may own with him that au peuple attristé c'est qui rendra la gaieté c'est la gadrielle au gai c'est la gadrielle end of chapter five recording by matt mark graff